Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study this morning in the fourth gospel. And let me just remind you that Lazarus' purpose here, which is articulated at the end of the book, is to present proof that Yeshua is the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you might believe on His name, that you might have life. That's His purpose. It's evangelical. He wants to bring people to faith in Christ. And that's why He's telling us the things He is telling us. Now, we finished the prologue a couple weeks ago, these opening 18 verses that strongly declare the deity of Christ. Last week, we began to look at the body of this letter. Uh, we're looking at the first section, which is 119 through 1250. And in this first part of the body, he records Yeshua's public ministry to the multitudes in Palestine who were primarily Judeans. Now, last week, we began to look at the testimony of John the Baptizer, who's the first witness brought forth. Now, John's going to bring forth seven witnesses, all right, to the deity of Christ. John's the first witness. He gives testimony to who Yeshua is. Let me just tell you a little bit more about John the Baptist. We went into some of his history last week, but I want you to understand about this prophet and about his background to give you a little more insight into this gospel. There hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. All right, so there, and they knew that the time, but based on Daniel's prophecy, they knew it was time for something to be happening. So there's a lot of expectation at this time. His contemporaries, as we saw last week in the Gospels, saw him as a prophet of Yahweh. John the baptizer was a hereditary priest. He was the only child of elderly parents. His father, Zachariah, served as a temple priest. His mother was from the high priestly family. She was a daughter of Aaron, according to Luke 1.5. And John grew up in the wilderness. Alright, which is an interesting place for a, a child to grow up. Uh, Luke one eighty says, And the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert, or same word for wilderness there, until the day of his public appearance to Israel. So John is out there in the wilderness. His elderly parents, they were quite elderly when he was born, so they could have died early, and he'd had no one to raise him. As a son of a priest, it's doubtful that he just grew up in the wilderness, you know, foraging kind of for himself. Um, he could well have been brought up by the priestly Essenes in the Qumran community. He may have been raised in Qumran. Remember the Qumran people, they saw themselves as priests, sons of Zadok. And they viewed the, the priesthood in Israel as totally corrupt, and it was. So they separated themselves from the establishment of the priesthood that was in Jerusalem, moved out to Qumran, and they had a separate community there. They were waiting on the Lord. Now, from the sectarian documents that we found in the caves of Qumran, it indicates that the community adopted orphan children of priests. And so it's very likely that John was raised out here in Qumran by these people. So John lived completely apart from the religious system of Israel. He's not only alien to the apostate system of Judaism, he is anti-apostate Judaism. He's not only separate from them, he speaks prophetically against them, and he warns them of the judgment to come. So he's not a really favorable man, according to the priests in Jerusalem. Again, here's a map, I'll show you what's going on. You can see Jerusalem underlined there. 
um, and also Bethany. Bethany was where he was preaching, carrying on the ministry. It's a desolate area. There's nothing there. Uh, they're going down to the Jordan River to be baptized. And the idea that his ministry is happening in the wilderness, as we said, is very significant. This location is exactly where the people expected God to do something. This is where Elisha saw his master, Elijah, assumed into heaven. Now remember, John the Baptist is dressed like Elijah. He looks like him. He's in that very area that Elijah disappeared from. So he shows up at the time they thought something was going to happen. So there's a lot of expectation going on. And that's why when they come to him, they say, who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? You know, are you the Messiah? Who, what are you? We know you're something. Something's going on here. This location was where the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan as they entered the promised land. So basically, John is saying it's time to start over. It's time for a new exodus. It's time for us to start over a spiritual exodus to depart from the bondage of sin and death. Mark tells us in Mark 1.5, And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, this is amazing when you think about it. Some commentators estimate that there could be between 200,000 and 500,000 people who participated in John's ministry. Because the expectation was so great. All of a sudden they hear, there's a prophet. It could be Elijah. He's out in the wilderness where Elijah disappeared from. And so they're making this trip out there to see him. And the trip is 20 miles from Jerusalem to Jordan. It's a 4,000 foot drop. And it's just rugged terrain out there. So the people are making this incredible journey because the messianic expectations in this, at this time period are running so high. So they're just going out there. They want to see what's going on. Now last week I said that John's testimony of Yeshua took place over three days. Remember that? And it's given to three different groups. Let's look at that. Day one, John says, He's here. There's one among you, he says, who stands among you. And he's speaking to that hostile delegation. The, the delegation sent from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leading religious council, they just, they're not happy with him at all. So that's what's happening on day one. And day two, John says, look at him. He says, behold. And he's speaking to the mass of people. This is a different group. This is not just the, you know, the delegate from the Sanhedrin. This is a whole group of people. And he's saying, here's the Lamb of God. And then on day three, which we'll look at next time, John says, follow him. And he's speaking to his own disciples. So John is now narrowed down to his disciples and he's telling his disciples, look, go follow him. Go follow him. So three days, three messages, three different groups. Lazarus' emphasis is on John the Baptist as a witness to Yeshua. He doesn't get into the Baptist, his call of national repentance to Israel. He doesn't deal with his baptizing. Everything is focused on what he has to say about Yeshua. He's a witness. Just given testimony to Yeshua. Now last week we looked at day one where this delegation from the Sanhedrin made up of priests, Levites and Pharisees came asking him questions, trying to find out who are you. Remember his response, I am a voice. I am not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet, which was the Messiah. He says, I'm simply a voice of one calling out in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. So we go to day two. John starts in John 1.29. He says, The next day he saw Yeshua coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is day two. This is group two. It's made up of a bunch of different people gathered together. There's a crowd together. And he says, Look at him. Behold. Pointing to the Messiah. 
Now, the words that John gives here are the words that reflect back on an interview that he had with the Lord at the time of the baptism. John doesn't get into any of that stuff here, but if you look at the other Gospels, you kind of put together what's happening here. And I want to do that. We're going to back up to Matthew, fill in some details here. Matthew 3.13 says, Then Yeshua arrived from Galilee at the Jordan coming to John. That's a long trip from Galilee down here to the Jordan River to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him. Now, at this time, John really doesn't know Yeshua is the Messiah. He knows Yeshua, but he doesn't know he's the Messiah. He tries to prevent him saying, I have need to be baptized of you. In other words, he knows this is a special individual. He says, do you come to me? But Yeshua answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Yeshua came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Yeshua's baptism isn't described at all in John's Gospel, but we know from the other three Gospels that it occurred about 40 days earlier from the time we have in the Gospel of John. So, He is baptized, He goes off into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil, and He's coming back. And He says, And He saw Yeshua coming to Him. He looks up and he sees Yeshua coming. He hasn't seen him for about 40 days because, right, like I said, right after he's baptized, he left. He went to be tempted of the devil. So he sees him coming, having just triumphed over Satan's great temptation. And John declares aloud, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is not what the people wanted to hear. A lamb? They're not waiting for a lamb. Okay, They would like to have heard, Behold your king! Behold the anointed one! Behold the warrior, your ruler! They wanted one who would kill their enemies, and John was presenting one who would be killed by their enemies. That wasn't what they wanted to hear. John is telling us here how Yeshua is going to bring salvation and redemption to mankind, not as a warrior like David but as a lamb of sacrifice for the people. The children of Israel, they understood this idea of sacrifice. They understood the lamb. And they abhorred human sacrifice because Yahweh had forbidden that practice. And now here's this young priest, this prophet, and he's identifying this man as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he's saying, this is the Messiah. This is the chosen one. This was not their idea of a chosen one. Again, they're wanting a warrior. They want to be free from Rome. They thought that when Messiah came, he was going to be a warrior. He's going to, you know, just going to be like David's kingdom again and take back over. He calls him the Lamb of God. Of God means provided by God. In other words, the Lamb is the Lamb that God provided. In the sense that the, it, the origin of the Lamb is a gift of God. Now, what would John's audience have thought when he spoke about a Lamb of God? The answer may not be as simple as you think. There's several major explanations for the symbolism of the Lamb. One of the New Testament commentators, one of the better commentators, Leon Morris, in his commentary on John, gives nine interpretations for the expression Lamb of God, and then he adds a tenth one that he puts in there for himself. You know, we're not going to go through all ten. I just want to give you four of them 
that I think are probably the more prominent ones that you know refer to this. So, so what does the Lamb of God speak of? One you might not think too much of is the apocalyptic Lamb. This appears in Jewish apocalyptic literature, the figure of a conquering Lamb. Now, doesn't that sound kind of strange to us? A conquering Lamb? You don't think of a Lamb something to conquer. But they thought of a Lamb who would conquer and would destroy evil in the world. We see this in the Testament of Joseph, chapter 19, verse 8. And we see it in the book of Enoch, chapter 90. Let's look at Enoch 90, 37. And I saw that a white bull was born with large horns, and all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air feared him and made petition to him all the time. And I saw till all the generations were transformed, and they all became white bulls. Now, follow this. we got some bulls here, all right? And the first among them became a lamb. And that lamb became a great animal and had great black horns on its head. And the Lord of the sheep rejoiced over it and over all the oxen. So here in the intertestamental apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, we have a lamb that's a victorious warrior. I think they kind of would have wanted this lamb because that's what they wanted. But the sacrificial aspect is still present in this apocalyptic lamb. But the lamb has an eschatological feature to it. He's a judge. That's the preeminent idea of this lamb. Now, you know, the Scripture talks about this apocalyptic lamb. Where would we go to find something about a lamb that's apocalyptic in Scripture? Yeah, how about Revelation 5, 5 and 6? And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne, which was the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain. Now that's a neat picture, huh? We've got a lamb standing as if it had been slain. So this lamb has overcome. It's, you know, this is, I think, a picture of resurrection. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So, Here we see an apocalyptic lamb. In the next chapter, we see this lamb breaking the sixth seal and judging the heavenly host. 6, 12, and 13, I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. You know this apocalyptic language. This is judgment language. And the stars of the heaven fell to the earth. So this is judging the hosts of heaven. The other gods are being judged here. This is Psalm 82 being played out. He is judging the stars. As a fig tree casts its unique figs, unripe figs, when shaken from a great wind. Now, then in the 17th chapter of the book of Revelation, there's a description of this final conflict in the form of warfare. This is taking place in heaven. This is a war that's going on in heaven. And we see a war between two animals, the wild beast and a lamb. And surprising thing is the lamb overcomes the wild beast. Revelation 17, 14. These will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So the lamb is going to overcome. Now, see, all this really fits with what John the Baptist has to say about 
when he's preaching, he gets into this eschatological aspect of his preaching, and he talks about there's going to be a judgment. In Matthew 3.12, he says, His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So there's going to be a judgment here. Now, commentators who hold the view that John is referring to an apocalyptic lamb say that John is referring to that future event when the lamb, the Lord Yeshua, in his final conflict will overcome evil and he will destroy sin, and thus he'll be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, meaning he's going to make an end of sin. That's a possible interpretation. But the term lamb used here in the Gospel of John and it's used two times here, we'll see here and then next in our next study, we'll see it also, is amnos. And the word in Revelation is a different word. It's arneon. Now this term amnos is only used four times in the New Testament. It's used by John twice in chapter 1 here. And it's that, then it's used in Acts 8.32, and we're going to look at that in a little bit. And it's used in 1 Peter 1.19, and we'll look at that a little bit. And I think that the use of Amnos tells us that this is the lamb, this is the slain lamb, this is not an apocalyptic lamb. It's, not, it's more to do with sacrifice, I think, than conquering. So we have an apocalyptic lamb. Another view that's put forth by various people, one commentator puts this forth very strongly to him, it's the only view, the Tamid, sacrifice lamb. Now some say that when John identified Yeshua as the lamb, he's talking about the Tamid sacrifice. This is the abbreviated form of Olat Tamid, the daily burnt offering. The unblemished male lamb offered as a communal sacrifice in the morning at the liturgical worship service and the unblemished male lamb in the afternoon liturgical worship service at the Jerusalem temple. These lambs were called the Tamid lambs, and their sacrifice in the liturgical worship service was to be perpetual for as long as the Sinai covenant endured. We see this in Exodus 29. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting. They were to bring this lamb every morning, every evening. They brought this lamb as a burnt offering. He says, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. So we see here that this lamb is to be sacrificed as a burnt offering. Now the problem here is that the burnt offering wasn't to deal with sin. And John tells us this lamb, the purpose of this lamb is to take away sin. Well, this lamb that he's talking about here, the Tamid lamb, was not about sin. The burnt offering was not about forgiveness. It wasn't about sin. It was designed to initiate contact with Yahweh. The offerer brings a burnt offering. He comes into sacred space hoping to be accepted by God. He says, he says at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that's, God, that's where God dwells. So he's bringing the lamb there, and the purpose is, I want to meet with you. That's what the text says. So he's bringing a male lamb without blemish from the herd, comes to the entrance of the tent of meeting. He's on sacred territory now, sacred space. He can't go any further. He's in the presence of God. This is where God dwells. And so he's bringing this offering, and his hope is what? To be forgiven of sin? No. This this has nothing to do with sin. He says, my hope is that I will be accepted before the Lord. 
That's what it's all about. He's coming and he wants to have fellowship with Yahweh. So he brings his lamb and he comes in. He says, I want fellowship. It's seeking fellowship with God. I want some time with God. So I'm coming to his house and I'm bringing this offering. Why? Because I don't want God to kill me. All right. God is holy. We are not. So he wants to deal with anything that has to be dealt with. But it's not a sin thing. It's not that he's done something wrong and he's coming to and forgives. I just want some fellowship. So understanding that, I don't see John as referring to the burnt offering here because he's talking about, in the Gospel of John, he's talking about this lamb is a lamb that deals with sin. That's what it's about. All right, so it's not the apocalyptic lamb, I don't think. I think that's, you know, that's in there. But Tamid sacrifice, I wouldn't even, I don't think that has anything to do with this. Then we have the lamb as the suffering servant. If we go to Isaiah chapter 53, you know, he talks about the servant and his suffering. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before shears, so he did not open his mouth. So here we have the suffering servant. He's like a lamb that is being slaughtered. Verse 10 says, but Yahweh was pleased to crush him. That's an incredible phrase. This is his beloved son. Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will prosper in his hand. So Isaiah 53 pictures the substitutionary death of Yeshua, the Lamb of God. Now the text in Isaiah 53.7 is applied to Yeshua in Acts chapter 8. So we know this is Yeshua he's talking about. In Acts chapter 8, remember the Ethiopian eunuch, he's been in Jerusalem to worship, he's coming back out of Jerusalem, and he just happens to be reading the Bible when he's leaving Jerusalem, all right? And it says, now a passage of Scripture, which he was reading, he's reading the Bible, and Philip comes along and says, hey, what are you reading? And he, you know, here was your reading. He says his reading was this, he was led as a sheep to slaughter, as a lamb before shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. And the word lamb here, now this is the text from Hebrew, but this is a Greek translation because we're in the New Testament. The, the term here is amnos. It's the same term we saw that John uses. Philip's takes this ver- Philip takes this verse and he applies it to Christ. He said, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Yeshua to him. Remember, he walks up and says, hey, you understand what you're reading? He goes, how can I unless somebody helps me? Oh, well, let me help you. Let me, and he takes the scripture he's reading and he t- points them to Yeshua. So the suffering servant of Yahweh is likened to a lamb brought into the slaughter. Where do you think Isaiah got this figure of a lamb brought to slaughter? Where do we go back before Isaiah to see his lamb slaughtered? Pretty famous account here. How about Passover? The Passover lamb in the book of Exodus. But let's go back even further. Where do we see this idea of a picture of a lamb and slaughter before Passover? Okay, Abraham. Abraham offers Isaac. Remember, he's told to take his son out to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. So he's doing it, and they're having a conversation as they're going up, and this conversation would kill me, okay? You know, and and the boy says, hey, Dad, um, got the fire, got the wood. Uh, Where's the sacrifice? What did Abraham tell him? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. That's faith, people. 
God's going to provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked up together. You know the rest of the story. He goes to offer his son. Um, God stops him. He turns and there just happens to be a ram caught in the thicket in his head. So he's got this crown of thorns, this ram around his head. There's just a lot of symbolism here. This is going on. So Yahweh provided the lamb in the person of the Lord Yeshua. So you have the lamb as a suffering servant. And I think these last two are really connected. The last one would be the Passover lamb. I think the Passover lamb, the suffering servant, those two, they're very much connected. And I think this is what John is talking about. Passover, I know you're familiar with the seven feasts of Yahweh. We've talked a lot about that here. These are appointed times of worship for Israel. And what they really were, they were dress rehearsals of prophetic events that were to happen in the future. So they're actually acting out what God's going to do. And through these feasts, God was showing Israel, here's what I'm going to do. They were pictures of their coming Messiah. Each one of them pictured Messiah. And as we think of Passover, please keep in mind that it is a type. The whole purpose was, it's a picture of something greater. It pictured the redemption of God's elect through the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God, the Lord Yeshua. You remember that the first Passover was observed when Israel was about to be delivered from slavery in Egypt. God had spoken through Moses, demanding that Pharaoh release his people. But in spite of everything that happened, and you know that's the sovereignty of God, any normal man would have said, get out of here a lot quicker. I mean, they literally destroyed Egypt. There's nothing left when they left. It was destroyed. It was so his people, in spite of this devastation, they just he wouldn't let them go. Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And so now, in preparation for the final and most terrible plague, the death of the firstborn, God gives Moses specific instructions for how the Israelites are to be saved. He says, Speak to the congregation of Israel, say, On the tenth of this month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to the father's household, a lamb for each household. All right, dads. Each you dad, you go out and you get a lamb, a cute little lamb. You bring it into the house on the tenth day. Then on the fourteenth, you sacrifice it. What have you been doing for four days? Playing with this cute little lamb. All right? You get the picture, you get the pain that's involved here. I mean, they've been, this thing's part of their household now. It's in the house, they're, they're getting attached to this lamb. On the fourteenth, they're to kill this lamb. That's probably more than we can even fathom right now because we don't understand that at all, but this is part of their culture, all right? And the idea was, you know, they were to take this lamb, they were to put the blood on the door, all who put their trust in this were going to be delivered. They placed their faith, they're going to be saved, not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin and guilt, and that's the whole idea. This is a picture. They're being delivered into the kingdom of God. Passover symbolism is all through this fourth gospel, especially in relation to the death of Yeshua. Yeshua is condemned at noon on the day before Passover, according to John 19, 14. At the very time the priests are taking these lambs and slaying them, Yeshua is hanging on the cross as the true Lamb of God. Hyssop is used to give a sponge of wine according to John 19.29, to give to the Lord. And hyssop was also used to smear the blood on the doorposts in the Passover, Exodus 12.22. Speaking of the Passover lamb, Yahweh said this, It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break 
any bone of it. So you don't break any bone. Now look at John 19, 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Yeshua, when they saw that he was already dead, they didn't break his leg. See, this was unusual, people, that he had died already. Pilate was, he was like, wow, he's dead already? If he wouldn't have been dead, they'd have broke his legs. And guess what? That wouldn't have worked out because the Passover lamb, there's not a bone of it broken. And he is the Passover lamb, and they did not break his legs. In John 19.36, it says, These things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. That's why they didn't break his legs. So they were fulfilling the Scripture. The Passover lamb was also to be a spotless lamb. We see this in Exodus 12.5. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. So Yahweh tells the Israelites the lamb is to be unblemished. In the New Testament, we see that Christ was this unblemished lamb. We see in 1 Peter 1.18 and 19. He says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And again here, the word is amnos. The lamb is amnos. This is connecting back to John. This is the sacrificial lamb. Peter makes it very clear here that Christ is spotless. He's unblemished. Paul also mentions Christ's sinlessness in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Now when the Passover supper took place and the new covenant was inaugurated, Yeshua took the wine which symbolized the blood and He said, This is My blood of the new covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Poured out for many here, this expression is the same expression found in Isaiah chapter 53. It's the Lord's way of saying, look, I'm the Passover lamb and I'm also the one who is to do what Isaiah describes about the suffering servant will do. He's going to offer Himself for the sins of many. So when John says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, I think his primary focus here is the Passover Lamb. The suffering servant of Yahweh. He's the Lamb of God. And the Lamb is a reference to Him in His work as a sin bearer. He is taking sin away. In Genesis 22.7, we looked at it. Isaac asked Abraham, Where's the Lamb? And here's John answering the question. Behold, the Lamb. Here He is. Here's the Lamb that Abraham knew the Lord was going to provide. And John says that this Lamb takes away the sin of the world. Now, takes away here signifies atonement and that by substitution. His substitute, He is a substitute. He's a substitute that dies under the penalty of sin. Now, He had no sin. That's why He could die for our sin. He is a penal substitute, a substitute who bears the penalty penalty that others were due. He died so the sinners who trust Him would not incur God's judgment. And it says He takes away. This is present tense, signifying ongoing sufficiency of Yeshua's sacrifice. Forever, permanently takes away the sin of the world. Now, what sin is He taking away? Um, last week you lied, so He's going to deal with that sin. What, what do you think? That, is there a specific thing here? Well, I think if there was, it would be unbelief. Look at John 16, 8 and 9. And He, when He comes, will convict the world, concerned, speaking of the Spirit, concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. 
And see, that's the essence of sin, people. It's unbelief. That's the reason Adam fell. I think Adam and Eve fell before they ever grabbed that fruit. They fell when they failed to believe God and trust Him. And as a result, they took the fruit. They didn't believe what He told them. Sin is unbelief. It's not trusting God. And He died to deal with that. He says the sin of the world. Now, some people want to jump on here and say, oh, this means that everybody who ever lived, Christ paid the penalty for their sin. Well, that would be universalism. And that's not what Yeshua is teaching. Later on, in the same book, Yeshua is going to say, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. So some people are going to die in their sins. And that can't be true. If it's universalism, nobody would die in their sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So there has to be faith in Christ. He's not teaching universalism. When John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he doesn't mean every person in the world is going to be saved. What he means by world here, people see world and they say, ah, it's just everybody. Jews and Gentiles. Now see, this is hard for Jews because, hey, we're the, we're the chosen ones. We're the ones that are going to be saved. No, it's Jews and Gentiles. John put it this way in his first epistle, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Propitiation means that his death removes the wrath of God. It takes it away. That's what propitiation means. It's the alleviation of wrath by the offering of a sacrifice. So the Lamb takes away, removes God's wrath. Not just for Jews, He takes away the sin of the whole world. Jews and Gentiles, not every single individual, but nations. Also the nations who Israel felt didn't belong, couldn't have what they had. But look what the Scriptures teaches in Revelation 5.9. It sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and ethnos. All the nations. All the nations. And this, this people, this was God's plan from the beginning. When He disinherited the nations and went and called Abraham, as soon as He called Abraham, He said He was going to reach back out to the nations again. Alright, let's move on in John. He says in verse 30, This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now let me suggest something here that may be a little bit different. Alright? Yeshua himself may have been a disciple of John the Baptist. I'll let that sink in for a minute. (laughs) Dodd suggests This is the most natural way to understand the words, he who comes after me. After me comes a man means one who follows me in the sense of being a disciple. And the same words here were used by Yeshua when he says, let him take up his cross and follow me. So you want to be Yeshua's disciple? This is is words of discipleship. Thus, he who comes after me, he says, ranks before me, for he was before me, would mean one of my disciples is more important than I am. That's what John is saying. Dodd says this, we are reaching back to a stage of tradition scarcely represented elsewhere in the Gospels, that Jesus was at one time regarded as a follower or adherent of John the Baptist. If the Synoptic Gospels report he accepted baptism at his hand, 
how else should he be regarded? In other words, the fact that he's receiving baptism showing he's one of his disciples. Now, let me give you some scripture that I think might verify this, okay? In Yeshua's day, there were rabbis. There were two types of rabbis. There were Torah teachers, and there were rabbis with Shmika. You remember that? We went over that before. In order to have Shmika, there was a handful of rabbis that had Shmika. And here's why. In order to have Shmika, you had to have the Tanakh memorized. All of it. You also had to have the Mishnah memorized. And you had to be a gifted teacher. And then you had to have two rabbis who had Shmika, who publicly put their hands on your head and declared from God that you had God's authority. Now, this is interesting. If you read history and read about some of these rabbis, it is pretty amazing. All right, Some of them performed miracles. They did a lot of different stuff that is kind of eye-opening when you see it. Over and over in the New Testament, people come to Yeshua and they ask Him, where did you get your authority? By whose authority did you... They're asking Him, where did you get your shmika? What gives you authority to do this? Who are your two rabbis, basically, is what they're saying to Him. There was a Jewish rabbinic technique that's commonly used to this day where they would begin a debate or a dialogue with a question. And the response from the group comes in the form of a question. There's never just an answer that ends the thing. You ask a question, they respond with a question, and in their question is the answer to your question, but it takes it further. See, they're thinking people, and they want to talk, so they just keep that it's not like a yes or no and go on, all right? They keep the discussion going, and it keeps extending to a deeper level. Look at Luke 2, 46 and 47. It came about that after three days they found him, this Yeshua, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So Yeshua is asking questions, and they were amazed at these questions. We see many times in Yeshua's teaching ministry, that he'll respond to a question with a question. That's a rabbinic technique. And in the question is the answer to their question, but he's taking it further. And it came about on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. Here's this delegation from Jerusalem, from the apostate Jerusalem, coming to confront him. And they spoke saying to him, Tell us. By what authority are you doing these things? In other words, where did you get your shmika? Or who is the one who gave you authority? Who gave you shmika that you can be saying these things? See, the, the Torah teachers were not allowed to give new teaching. They just they were allowed to reiterate and pass on teaching that had already been, been given. But the rabbis with shmika would give new teaching. So they're questioning him. Now to this, Yeshua responds in the typical rabbinic fashion, with a question. And he answered and he said to them, I shall ask you a question and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? So he's asking, did John get his authority? Did John get his shmika from God or men? Now remember, his question answers their question and their question was, where'd you get your shmika? So his question answers is, where'd you get your shmika? And he's saying, I got my shmika from John. It's very possible that Yeshua was a disciple of John. All right? It's very possible. There's a, there's a lot now, you know, not, it's not a hill I'm going to die on for sure, okay? But I think there's a lot of indications 
that he was a follower of John, and that's why John is just so blown away to realize this is the Messiah was following me. You know, there's other indications that he was a follower. We'll, we'll look at that later, all right? He says, he existed before me. See, physically, Yeshua was born six months after John. But the Holy Spirit had given John the Baptist knowledge of Yeshua's eternal existence. Verse 30 basically repeats verse 15 where he talks about this also. In verse 31, he says, I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifest to all Israel, I came baptizing in water. Now, if Yeshua was John's disciple, how could John say this? How could he say, I didn't recognize him? He says that in verse 31. He says it again in verse 33. What he means here, he didn't say, I didn't know who he was. They were cousins, okay? They were cousins, you know, Mary, you know, went to her cousin Elizabeth, and, you know, she says, oh, man, you're bearing the Messiah, and they're all excited. You'll think that they don't pass that on to their child, however long they had him, but then he's raised in the wilderness, but he knows. They know each other. I didn't recognize him means I didn't recognize that he was Messiah. I didn't know he was the one. I didn't realize that. He says, so that he might be manifest to Israel, I came baptizing in water. The reason for John's baptism was to manifest to Israel their Messiah. And, you know, the gift of redemption had to first be offered to Israel before it was offered to the nations. Yeshua tells disciples in their first missionary efforts, He said, these twelve Yeshua sent out instructing them, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the gospel had to start with Israel. And for the first ten years of the church, that's primarily where it was, all right? It was Israelite, it was Jews, all right? But the suffering servant passage that we looked at in Isaiah 53 also speaks about the redemption of the nations. Again, this is not an afterthought. You go back to the very Genesis 12, the call of Abraham. You're going to reach out. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. There's always God's plan to bring back these nations that he had disinherited back into the fold. But the Jews just never could seem to carry that out. They took pride of race, and they didn't want to share it with anybody. They didn't want them coming in at all. That was, no, this is for us. This is our God. You got your own gods. They did have their own gods. But they weren't the true gods. And so they were to come to the one true God, and Israel never did a good job in doing that. John 1.32 said, John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. Now, in Luke 3.22, it says the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in bodily form like a dove. So there's a visible manifestation of the Spirit that looked like a dove to those who saw it. I don't think it was actually a dove. I guess it could have been, but something that looked like a dove. They they saw this. They saw this come out of heaven and come right down and rest upon Him. Each of the Gospel accounts includes this description of God's Spirit descending like a dove. Now, John differs from the other Gospels only that he does not describe the baptism itself. He just describes the descent of the Spirit, and he says, uses the phrase, out of heaven. This dove comes out of heaven and lands on him. Now, Jewish interpreters considered the dove to be symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And when they spoke of the Spirit of God abiding over the chaos in the beginning of creation, they spoke of the Holy Spirit abiding as a dove over creation. So this is you know, imagery that they would understand. It's also, I think, significant that the dove was the poor man's bird of sacrifice. 
okay? You were too poor to do anything else. I'll bring a dove, all right? Now, the Tanakh makes it plain that the long-awaited Messiah would be empowered by the Spirit of God. And that he would, the Spirit would be poured out on his people. Look at Isaiah 42. He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one. The same servant we get to in Isaiah 57. Whom my soul delights, I have put my Spirit upon him and will bring forth justice to the nations. This is why God said to John, I do not, John says, I do not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize, that's the Father, he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So John said, my test about Yeshua doesn't come from what I know about him naturally. God told me this. God said, the one you see the Spirit coming on, that's the one. He's the one that's going to baptize. Now, two times in John the Baptist's account, he made mention of the Spirit remaining on Yeshua. The Greek tense here is in the aorist tense. It's ingressive, enforced, and it means the Spirit came and remained upon him. Throughout his ministry, he was anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. He says he is one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit imparting new life. It is giving life to people. Paul told the carnal Corinthians, because a lot of people want to say, well, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's a second work. You get saved, and you're Christian, and later when you get super spiritual, you get the baptism. Well, I don't know any super spiritual people, so you're going to, most people are going to be without the Spirit, okay? No, the Spirit is the one that brings you into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, for one Spirit, we are all, baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. Now, again, he's talking to the Corinthians. If there's a messed up group, this is them, all right? But he says, we've all been baptized, whether slave or free, we've all been made to drink of one spirit. So believers have all been baptized by the spirit. He's bringing the believers into the body of Christ. Not a second experience. It happens at salvation. If you trusted Christ, you've been baptized in the spirit. Don't run around looking for something extra, okay? It's a package deal. You get it all. You get it all together when you trust in Christ. All right, it's sad that so many Christians are frustrated, running around looking for something more, something else. I got to add, got to get something better, and they're looking for new revelation. It's all right here. That's all you got. Just get this and read it. They're not even reading this, but they're running around looking for something new. You don't need anything new. It's all in there. John closes out day two by saying this in John one thirty four. I myself have seen and have testified. Again, this is John's witness. This is the Son of God. I myself have seen and testified. They're both perfect, active, indicative. A seen and a testified. Action taking place in the past, completed and continuing. I have seen it, continue to see it. I'm testifying. I keep doing it. This is the Son of God. Now, folks, this is a title that is unambiguously claims deity. The Son of God means He is God. All right, not that He's an offspring of God. The Son of God means He's God. Look at what Yeshua said in John 5.18. For this reason, therefore, Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So to them, you're, you're saying God's your Father? You're saying you're equal with God? That's exactly what he was saying. And they wanted to kill him for that. Now, I said this last week, but let me say it again, because it bears repeating. John the baptizer identifies himself as a preparatory voice 
in Isaiah 40, verse 3, and they ask, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Messiah, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, I am a voice. A preparatory voice for who? Well, in the text we've just looked at, he's preparing the way for Yeshua. I don't think there's any question. I don't think anybody would argue about that. John the Baptist was preparing the way for Yeshua. But if we go back to the text he quotes, he says, a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Yet John says, preparing the way for Yeshua. That's because Yeshua is Yahweh. And people deny this. They want to argue about this. Well, he's not Yahweh. He's just a son. People, it's all through the Scripture. All right? It couldn't get any clearer. John the Baptist testified, Yeshua is Yahweh. And the Jews said, calling God his Father, he's making himself equal with God. He is equal with God. Let me throw you one more in for good measure, okay? Isaiah chapter 6. You know the picture? It's a throne room scene. In the very throne room of God. He sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, his train filled the temple. The throne room guardians, the seraphim are there. You know, it's just this picture of God in His throne. And Isaiah says in verse 5, My eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. This is Yahweh on His throne. But what's interesting, when you get to John 12, we're told that the person Isaiah saw was Christ. John 12, 41. These things, said, these things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. His and him, you go back in text, he's talking about Yeshua. He is calling Yeshua Yahweh. He saw Yeshua on the throne. Yeshua is always the visible member of the Trinity. Manifest. He is manifesting God. He is Yahweh the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And that is John's testimony. John says, I want you to know he is the Son of God. Yeshua is God's Son. That's the testimony of John. We're going to get six other testimonies to that same thing throughout this book. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray You'd give us hearts to desire to know the truth of it, to dig, to study. I pray, Lord, that things we hear we wouldn't believe without looking into them ourselves, without digging and doing some research and studying ourselves. Give us hearts to know, Father. Give us the spirit of Bereans. Thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to come to a place like this where we have the freedom to talk together, to lift you up, to exalt you, to worship you. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Amen. Mm -hmm.